You're listening to the Global Ed Podcast, where educators share inspiring and thought-provoking stories from around the world. In this episode, I'm speaking with Norris, who was a high school principal in Cairo during the Arab Spring. Norris is also a licensed lawyer who makes petitions to the United Nations on behalf of displaced people and asylum seekers. Norris, welcome to the Global Ed Podcast. Uh, Thanks so much, Gavin, for having me. Um, Before we delve into your experiences in Egypt, can you just tell us a little bit about where you grew up, please? Sure. Uh, I am a U.S. citizen, grew up in the great state of Indiana, which uh, its uh, slogan is the crossroads of America because you just want to drive through it. It's not worth stopping. (laughs) Uh, So grew up there in northern Indiana, uh, kind of a colder climate. Um, Went to high school there, actually went to university very close to where I grew up as my parents were both professors at the local university. So I I got the blessing of my parents in being able to attend university where they were professors and and going to school for free. So that was my first degree there in Indiana. Um, And really, I think my parents are are who kind of brought me into education because I I just saw the love and the passion that they had for students. I I, even at the collegiate level, uh, they really had a heart for the students that signed up to be in their courses. And as a result, I just saw that love kind of on their faces and every day coming home, bringing that energy back home and and being my parent and me being able to see just how much enjoyment they got from spending eight to 10 hours a day uh, at the university, I think just led me into thinking, yeah, education is the right choice for me. Now, I know you spent some time in the U.S. public system, but what was it that made you think that you might want to pursue a career in international schools? You know, public school in the state, it states is its own beast. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot in that. And I, I don't think we have time in this podcast to really unpack that. But um, the idea for me was my wife had just finished her master's degree. We were looking for an opportunity to maybe just explore, but also to save money. We really were interested in saving money. And as an educator in the States, um, we were already living at the ends of our means, if you will. Um, you know, we, and, and my wife had just gotten out of grad school. She did a graduate degree in a, in a, in a career that uh, isn't necessarily about making money. It's about, um, you know, performing. And it, great, if she, gets, if, she, if she gets on someplace, fantastic. She would, she would be able to support some things, but, but there was no guarantee. It was like, let's, let's put ourselves in a position where we can support our lives here. And so let's go and, and make money abroad uh, and do the same thing. And I, I actually, strangely enough, had no idea that international education even existed. My understanding as a, you know, just as a teacher in the States was, well, if you wanted to go abroad, you could teach English as a second language or a foreign language or an additional language. That was the only understanding or concept that I had for international education. So I just start clicking on a few things and I realize, wow, there are many, many international schools of of considerable quality that I would really enjoy working at and getting to know the people there and, and, and experiencing a life lived abroad for a bit. And obviously I said, we were just planning on one year, you know, get a little taste, get some money in the bank, go to law school. And what was one year has now turned into a lifetime. So you ended up in Egypt. How did that come about? I really focused on like clicking around different schools and seeing websites and thought, oh, that's a great website. Let's figure this out. And that great website had uh, American International School of Egypt on it. I thought, 
wow, Egypt would be great. Egypt has always been this, you know, fantasy world that we read about in, in some historical and, and religious texts. So I'm like, let's, let's figure out what Egypt, Egypt's all about. So we, we hop on a plane after receiving the job. And uh, four days later, I am in a classroom full of um, in Egyptian and dual citizen students um, working in a, in a beautiful school east of Cairo. What was your experience of arriving in Egypt for the first time like? And were there any challenges for you and your family? Well, um, you know, this is one of those beautiful things about an administrator, a good administrator, is we had an administrator pick pick us up from the airport. And, you know, that administrator, she was waiting for us. She had a sign with our names on it. I mean, talk about feeling like you belong to someplace. You know, that's It's like, you're my people. Like, immediately, she was just like, you're my people. You're with me. We're okay. And because it was overwhelming. I mean, at that time, in 2008... Egypt um, really had some older terminals in, in its airport. It didn't have maybe a newer terminal or, or a couple of the newer terminals that they have now. So really, it was flying into a very developing uh, nation terminal. And you're kind of overwhelmed by all the people around you. At that point in time, uh, you know, anyone could come to the airport, not go past security, but at least be waiting and milling around in uh, kind of the outside waiting area of the terminal. I mean, it was overwhelming the number of persons that were there. And I just remember looking and seeing um, her name was Michelle or is Michelle. And I just remember her just waiting there with a sign that said Norris and Angela Ham. And like, I was just relieved that this wasn't, uh, you know, a, a staged ripoff where we're going to be taken somewhere. Uh, you know, we hopped on a school bus. She drove us to our um, school apartment um, and uh, we kind of just opened our door, walked in. Uh, the school had done a great job of like putting sheets on the bed, uh, having pillows for us, having a couple of snacks in the refrigerator. Um, and I think my wife cried a little bit just because of the overwhelming nature of the trip. Um, it would have been the longest trip we'd ever taken at the time. And and then we, we were there and we spent two days. Uh, we had different teachers picking us up from the school and would take us out to different grocery stores to show us where we could buy some products that might be more familiar for us. And um, yeah, and, and what was interesting about the time is we entered and it was uh, Ramadan here uh, in Egypt. And so we didn't even understand the concept of Ramadan coming in. And so coming in during a time where stores are only open for a very, you know, uh, short amount of time, uh, you know, not a lot of cafes open on the streets, buying water, or buying food during the day is not really um, encouraged. Uh, it was a really interesting experience, but I think the school did a fantastic job of adopting us as, as their people. And, you know, from that, that just instilled loyalty in us beyond, um, you know, anything that a paycheck could have. You know, this was, this was people willing to come and take a step out of their normal day to day and onboard to very, very uh, newbies. From the, from the States. We do have breaking news tonight from Cairo, where after a day of unprecedented violence, the night gives way to armed chaos. The Egyptian military stood neutral as pro and anti-Mabar crowds exchanged punches and rocks and flaming bottles of gasoline throughout the day. But how will they respond now that bullets are flying through Liberation Square? I want to talk about um, the Arab Spring. Uh, you were there in uh, 2011 uh, when that arrived to Egypt. Um, what was that like? And how did you first hear about it? And what, what um, impact did it have on you uh, and your school? 
Oh yeah. Thanks for that. Um, uh, so I was teaching IB psychology at the time we were, I guess this would have been January. My, um, IBDP second year students were, you know, neck deep in studies. We had just come off of a winter holiday. So we had kind of come back uh, to school earlier that right after the, the Eastern Christmas, if you will, on January 7, we had just come back. So we had had about two weeks in school. And then all of a sudden on a Friday morning, which is the holy day here in Egypt, on a Friday morning, uh, all the all the cell phone networks go down. So you can't use your cell phone. And, and at that time, we didn't have smartphones, which is a little Nokia um, kind of burner phones, if you will. And, you know, I'm trying to get a hold of people and no text is going through and no phone calls going through. And it's like, what what is happening? And um, we're we're sitting in our apartment. Um, and I remember the so each mosque uh, in the neighborhood has a kind of a public address system. And uh, this is where the call to prayer kind of rings out. And on that, there were um, uh, the imam of the mosque was like making an announcement. And at that time, I didn't really know enough Arabic to understand what what was being said. Um, and so this this beautifully, wonderfully sweet lady from like two floors down in our apartment comes up the stairs and knocks on our door. And, you know, I look out the, the little you know people there and I go, huh, uh, this is interesting. And so I open the door and this is old lady and she says, you need to stay in your apartment. People are coming to kill you. Soon this square was a battleground and it raged on for hours. Rocks were hurled from both sides. There were bloody beatings and Molotov cocktails tossed into the crowd. And so my wife immediately goes into like, 100 mile an hour mode because she's also at this point in time she's six months pregnant um and so she's like what are we gonna do we can't get to a hospital can't do this i'm like sweetheart i don't know let's just let's just take a pause uh figure this out one of the blessings that came from that was i was uh our apartment had the 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 i guess the the phone network company here could put international allowances on a phone line or not and so our apartment because it was school rented had an international phone line that you could reach airlines you could reach home and so we had a lot of people actually from the school who were not in school housing come to our place and actually use our place as a communications hub um, so we stayed a few days and then um, our school just contacts us and says you need to pack one bag a piece and there will be a school bus that comes around to the outside of your neighborhood because at that point in time, they weren't allowed to get into the neighborhood because the neighborhoods were blocked off by well-meaning citizens who were protecting their, their, their own property. You need to walk to these meeting points. We're going to pick you up. And then we actually received a military escort from Cairo all the way through the Sinai Peninsula to a location called Sharm el-Sheikh, which is right on the tip of the Sinai Peninsula. And we stayed in a resort for a couple of weeks on the, on the Sinai Peninsula because, again, the owners of our school really understood at that time, if you take care of these people, this will instill loyalty and this will allow your school to gain trust, not just locally, but internationally. Um, and so they, they put us up in, in, a, in a resort and it was just odd. You know, we're, we're sitting there and we're kind of walking to the buffet and then walking back to our, 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 our different rooms and hotel rooms and all these Egyptian workers are staring at the TV watching as their country um, 
really struggles to uh, you know piece itself together and move forward and and all, out of this protracted conflict. Um, you know, we just got to see it, but from a very far off place. And we were offered an opportunity to um, to evacuate, and so my wife went and flew back to the United States because our doctor had fled to Europe. Um, and so that's where our, our daughter was born. But I did want to share something that just about admin during this time. And that was our our middle school principal. I was um, sorry. Uh, yeah, it was our middle school principal. Um, I'm teaching IB at the secondary level. Our middle school principal and our director were both out at a um, at a at a teacher fair, at a job fair when the revolution hit. So they're not even in country. We're here in a small resort in Sharm El Sheikh on the Sinai Peninsula, wondering what's going to happen, getting all of our information from basically um, people who were keen on reading the news. Um, and, and all of a sudden, a couple of days into our time in the resort of Sharm El Sheikh, the middle school principal arrives and he had taken a private flight from the job fair into Sharm El Sheikh directly because he wanted to be with his educators during this time of crisis. And I'll tell you what, uh, to, a, to a person, uh, if that man were to call and ask, hey, I need you to, I want you to come and join me here at this school, or I, I, I need you here, to a person, everyone would say, absolutely, yes, I'm there, just let me know when. Um, they, you know, there is something really special about an admin who steps into conflict as opposed to an admin who could have remained on the outside looking in. Um, but those teachers of, of his and, and certainly our school as a whole, we just rallied around him. He brought, I mean, and he's got no expertise in this. There's no like admin class that he took. There's, he, he didn't take, you know, leading through protracted revolutionary crisis. You know, he didn't take that class. And yet, just because we have a leader on the ground who cared about us, I mean, that just instilled loyalty to the school through, through and throughout. And many of those teachers that were with us during that time would reflect upon that day that he walked into the hotel, walked into Egypt as a day where they said, yeah, this is a school that I want to be at for a long time. Wow, that's an incredible story and a great example of leadership in some real uh, turmoil there because uh yeah it's a dangerous place to be but um obviously long term people remember those things for a long uh, a long time what was it like though in outside of the arab spring just dealing with egypt as a place as a culture because i'm sure that um the family dynamics the culture there is very different from what it is in lots of other places so um how have you dealt with that in your role as the a high school principal over there yeah thanks for that it's definitely um it's definitely an interesting dynamic culture culture there's there's a school culture there's the surrounding culture of the school there's the culture of the, the teachers and there's the culture of the students and combining all of these international setting, as, as you are yourself an international leader, educator, um, you understand that there are some push and pull dynamics there. One of the push and pull dynamics that I really had to um, embrace was the, the sense of the students and the parents really own this school because the most um, itinerant 
of school people were the leaders and the educators. The most itinerant people, the school, the ones that are moving um, both in and out, the ones that are traveling to and from, they're, they're leaving every two years, every four years, every six years. But we have students, the vast majority of them were staying in the school. And so there was a really a sense of this is our school and you're just kind of honeymooning in the school. Uh, and that's that's an interesting that's an interesting dynamic as a school leader, as a. Uh, and so when you're in that parent meeting, when you're in that disciplinary meeting, acknowledging that this is a school that these parents and these students really care about and possibly care about more than many of your teaching staff and many of your leadership, um, because this is they're going to be here from K through 12. Uh, you know, in American sense, they're going to be here for the duration um, and they're caring about the long-term vision, not just the uh, short-term one, two, four years, five years on average that a teacher or leader uh, are going to be there. Some of the cultural things were just like, you know, when someone comes in and, and in Egypt, it's very much a, this is who I am. This is my role. This is my position. And there's a lot of honor associated with this. We laughed uh, that we call them golden eagle cards. Um, and, you know, uh, high ranking uh, persons within the government have like this, this amazing business card with this golden eagle on it. <laughs> and they, you know, when that came in and dropped in, it was like, oh, okay, we're, we're and, and for me, it was like, well, I'm not going to give you any more respect than I give to everyone else. But that meant that everyone needed to get a high level of respect. Um, and I remember a specific, a specific situation where one person who was a very high ranking uh, foreign official for this country uh, came in and I was disciplining his freshman and his junior son because they had been in a schoolyard fight. And basically a couple of uh, a couple of sophomores had been picking on this freshman kid. Um, and this freshman kid decided to tell his brother this was happening. And so, so uh, junior brother, freshman brother are fighting about five sophomore boys. And, you know, this, this man comes in irate because I'm going to suspend all of them. Not just, not just the, the aggressors, if you will, but also I'm going to suspend his boys because they were in a fight. And I just said, you know, can we, we're, we're going to put, we're going to put our positions aside here and we're just going to talk as dads. As a dad, I would be doing the same thing that you're doing. As a dad, I understand full well that you don't think your son should be disciplined because he was just protecting himself. As a dad, I agree with you that, that, that my son shouldn't be suspended. Now I want to put back our, our school personas and our position. And I'm going to say, look, if I've got fighting in my school between boys, we are going to deal with that per our disciplinary codes. And we're going to abide by this is what we say in our disciplinary code, and this is what you signed. We're going to put that together and we're going to say, we, we appreciate each other, we respect each other, we value each other's positions, but we have to honor this disciplinary code. And what it means is we have a zero tolerance uh, policy for fighting and we've got fighting. And so there was, there was some flexibility around that in terms of what we could call it on some transcripts <laughs> or what we could call it in the, in the behavior, uh, you know, documentation. Like, and we did. We can take every leeway. But I said, like, look, we're going to step outside of this and we're going to talk as dads. Because at the end of the day, when you're talking to a parent, you can talk to that parent as an adult, maybe as a, as a parent yourself, maybe as a school leader. And uh, you can kind of don that. If you've got that person that understands that you value position, and you step outside of those positions, 
that was a really neat opportunity to engage. But I've also been on the on the on the front where um, there are mothers, and in this culture, mothers are in charge of the education for their kids up and until. Um, it's determined by the family that that mother is not doing a good enough job, which is really, really painful. And I've seen this take place. And, you know, it usually happens where a kid is not doing well in school or a kid is not just in academic performance, but potentially in behavior. And I've seen, um, you know, the, the father come in and basically berate um, the mother in front of me because it's, it's her fault that these things are happening. And so to, to observe this and to be able to shape and mold some of those conversations with that family to not just, not just protect the school or not just protect the student, but also to protect the family dynamic and the, and, and support mom, um, in this process and also acknowledge and appreciate culture in this process. That is a really interesting conversation to have yeah and that's a fine line fine line for you to walk as well i guess it is and and no matter how long i spend here in egypt or elsewhere i'm i'm always going to be an outsider looking in um and so you know, my my roles are choose to support and encourage uh my roles are choose to acknowledge my roles are hey if there's something that really needs to be addressed for a child you know child safety we're going to address that regardless of what culture says um but we've, you know, several times in my tenure as a as an administrator, school leader here, I've had to step into situations where I know I have to be very careful about, like, which parent do I call because of this discipline issue? Hmm, I'm not going to call dad because if dad is involved in this, this gets, you know, ratcheted up way beyond where I think it needs to be. And so we call mom. Um, both equal parts to play in this. Mom and dad can work this out at home if they need to, but my first call is in an admin. That's actually a cultural decision. Um, and, and thinking about that, uh, you know, and adding that to what an admin is responsible for, I think that's, that's, that's really valuable as an international educator, educator as a leader, is understanding there's culture in even something as simple as calling home. I want to talk about some of the legal work which you've done, because as well as being an assistant principal, you have also um, done legal work in Egypt. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the ways in which you've been able to work in that sphere. Yeah, thank you for that question. Sure. So, you know, leadership is a passion of mine, but so too is you know defending the cause of the fatherless, the foreigner, the widow, the persons who who do not have the opportunity to sit at the same table and. Um, so that has been near and dear to our hearts, my wife's heart, my heart. We started a, a, a small foundation here called Heart Help Home, which is cultivating the hearts of Egyptians to love their neighbors as themselves uh, so that Egypt becomes uh, a home for the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow, which are primarily who are primarily refugees. Um, and so we've we've partnered with some really good local organizations as well and supporting what they do. One of those is the Sudanese Displaced Children's Learning Center, which, you know, I do want to talk about. Um, the legal work here is all about. Um, so so there are two parts of it. One is, yes, I practice before the U.N. Um, I can submit, um, you know, inquiries of the United Nations or to the United Nations. Um, I'm not a practicing Egyptian lawyer. I don't have a license to practice here as an Egyptian lawyer. I'm an American licensed attorney. Uh, much of the work that I've been doing has been on the immigration front, uh, also preparing people who are asylees or refugees 
for their um, resettlement interviews, uh, preparing home communities in the States um, and elsewhere to receive um, refugees if they are resettled into their communities, um, advocacy on that front. Um, so so my, my legal work is, is a lot more advocacy than it is like the specific casework. Um, but we've seen just a great deal of successes as we, I believe the legal field can be used um, to really provide those beautiful avenues to bring um, particularly vulnerable people and or people that are incredibly skilled, but those skills will not be um, valued in their current host culture, um, in, the, in the host country culture, um, to, to bring them into places where they will be valued, where they will be given an opportunity to, to participate in the economy in a, in a, um, you know, in a rightful and, and forward-looking capacity. Sudan now, and the United Nations is warning that the escalating humanitarian disaster there could force more than 800,000 people to flee. The UN says more than 330,000 have been internally displaced and over 100,000 have already crossed the border from Sudan into neighboring countries. In the capital Khartoum, fighting continues despite promises of a ceasefire. The refugees coming to Egypt around its sort of its neighbors, would you be getting many coming up from Sudan? Yeah, we, we, we have. So in the past six months, we've gotten about 400,000 from Sudan already uh, before things kicked off in Sudan. Um, we already have about we already had about five million what, what I like to consider displaced persons. Uh, so they are not refugees. They have not gone through the official process of of asylum, but they are displaced persons. So there's violence or uh, conflict in the region of Sudan that they're in. And so they leave and then come legally to Egypt. They could get a, um, they could get a visa at that time. So yeah, um, 5 million displaced persons already here. Add to that about 400,000 new persons as a result of the outbreak of conflict and violence in April that we saw. Um, and so we really have a crisis of, of considerable proportion here on the ground with refugee communities, specifically with Sudanese refugees. I know that you help them understand the legal system and what their options are, but in what other ways do you help support these people who now find themselves living in a totally new place? Yeah, I think, I think just sitting across the table from anyone and having a cup of coffee with them and just like trying to like, that is probably the most important work that we do is just uh, like almost, uh, I think of it as rehumanizing, but more repersonizing. Um, uh, just like, hey, you're a person. We care deeply for you, and we're gonna find we're gonna find ways that we can support you, even if that's just having a cup of coffee with each other. Um, and that's the, so important to give people just time and opportunity to share. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to hear about all the work you're doing in Egypt. Um, sounds like it's been an amazing experience and uh, probably more than what you bargained for when you uh, you first moved over there. But uh, as we close, um, sort of what's next for you um, and uh, what have you learned from your, your time going international? Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, this has been a joy. I'll simply say that what's next is <laughs> whatever allows me to be creative, whatever allows me to be innovative. Um, I'm, I'd love to maybe get back into education in a leadership role, but really in, encouraging um, 
young men and women to think creatively, to inquire. I love what the IB does with inquiry, but, but I think even stepping out of that and saying there are diverse fields out there that if you ask the right questions, the answers will bring an entire career to your doorstep. Um, and so for me, it's just saying like, what questions do you have? Be a curious person, engage in this world. And most of our kids these days know that what they can do can impact a broad spectrum of people. They just have to be encouraged to do that and to not kind of rest on their laurels or rely on, on what the past was. Cause the past is absolutely changing every second of every day. And, and what we know now in education is not nearly what we should know tomorrow in education. So looking at that as, a, as an opportunity to just excite people, I'm an excitable guy. Um, so I like, I like motivating people, encouraging people to, to achieve. Um, I'd love to see partnerships between schools, both like a, a refugee schools like the Sudanese Displaced Children Learning Center and, a, and an international school. That partnership will grow and shape the lives of each of those students um, throughout. And I'd love to see law begin to serve people. I, I like I like thinking I've got leadership opportunities in education and serving opportunities in both education and law. Thank you, Norris, for coming on the Global Ed podcast and sharing with us everything that you've been doing in Egypt. I really do wish you and your family all the very best. And thank you for the difference that you've made to that part of the world. Thanks, Gavin. It's been a pleasure. Next time on the Global Ed podcast. My only humble hope is this health crisis will be solved and our students can have lives where funerals are not normal. In the next episode, I speak with Rachel, who is the principal of a remote Indigenous school in far North Australia. Rachel shares what it is like to lead an Indigenous school, the beauty of the people she serves and the challenges the community faces. If you have enjoyed listening to the Global Ed podcast, please subscribe and follow me, Gavin Kinch, on LinkedIn.